bad internet is worse than no internet because it gives you that hope that you will be able to connect. And we're taking folks from bad internet to the best you can find. So it, it really is a, a game changer. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm talking with Justin Holsgrove, the Director of Engineering and Utility Services at Mason Public Utility District Number 3. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hello, thanks for having us. Great to have you back. It's uh, your third time around. Uh, and we have a first time guest as well, Mike Wrenches, who is the Mason PUD number three telecommunications manager. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Justin, I think that was your old job. Is that right? And you got promoted since we talked last? That's right. But uh, Mike is filling the shoes better than I ever could have done the job. So we're actually in a better place now um, with Mike in that place. So that's terrific. Um, so we have talked, um, as we mentioned, we talked about uh, previously how Mason PUD3 got started, some of the background, you do electricity, there was smart grid type stuff, um, and uh, use service zones. We did an entire show talking about service zones from COOS or COS, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, and so people can check on that. But uh, let's jump in, Mike, with a quick refresher of, of how um, and why um, PUD number three is doing broadband services you know we're, we're doing broadband services we, we've uh, started about 23 years ago now you know and at first it was to bring broadband out and uh, deploy it to our facilities our substations our grid and we had an excess capacity model where we brought fiber to the home and that's expanded year after year uh, seeking grants uh, as well. Uh, that's helped us extend our distribution network to serve uh, many, many residents here in Mason County. And we're continuing to fulfill that need to those who are unserved or underserved. And you're doing it, uh, Justin, with an interesting model that I feel like you kind of pioneered. There's probably someone out there who's saying, oh, someone, oh, I did it first. But um, but it's something that we didn't run into a whole lot, uh, a construction adder uh, to help uh, pay for the infrastructure. So can you walk us through how that came about? It was a team effort here. And, and you're right. We kind of dreamed it up ourselves. If anybody would know about uh, a model that was similar to it, I would look at you, Chris, and uh, and if you've heard of one. So if you haven't heard of one, then I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> uh, we've heard the the name Fiberhood um, from a Google Fiber pilot project early. Uh, so we didn't come up with that name, but uh, Google didn't trademark it. So we're using it to expand broadband to the unserved and underserved here. It essentially uh, works in a similar rate model as the electric utility, um, which is a melded rate philosophy. It's the idea that uh, the customer's electric service that is right outside the substation is much cheaper to s serve and provide than the, the person at the end of the line, but yet they all pay the same electric rate. And the, in the fiberhood model, it's very similar. Um, when we identify a zone and when a zone reaches a 75% commitment level, that's when we move it to the construction list. We build the zone. But in order to connect to the fiber that the PUD builds, it's a flat application fee, $250 app fee, and then a $25 per month construction adder on top of what the retail service provider uh, charges to the customer. And that is the same cost whether you have a driveway that's 1,000 feet underground or um, a, a 50-foot service drop from you know, overhead from the road. One is much more expensive to build uh, than the other, but it's a melded rate philosophy. Everybody's paying that same construction adder. 
we did a whole podcast uh, several years ago about that fiberhood model. Nothing's changed in how it's uh, operated um, or how it uh, is, is formatted. It only lasts for 12 years. It expires after that. And then you don't have to pay that construction adder. If you join in year three, for example, you only pay the remaining nine years of construction adder. If you leave after five years, move uh, out of the area or whatnot, you no longer pay the rest of that. And is that so per that's, zone? That's how that works. Yes, that's right. It's per zone. Yeah, that's when the clock starts, when we can connect the first customer in the zone. So you have some zones that are presumably more than half done or pretty close to that? Oh, certainly. Um, so one of the, the critical pieces for the success of the program is that we are only building in areas that are unserved or, or really underserved. Um, and so we're not building to other areas that have solid coax cable plant networks or fiber to the home networks already existing. They're already being taken care of. Uh, Mesa County has a lot of areas that don't have any service or have really poor DSL. And so we're focusing on those. Uh, what we have found is when we come in uh, and build the fiber hood, uh, we're hitting incredible take rates right off the bat. Um, 80% or so is kind of what our sort of average take rate is on existing fiber hoods right now that have been up and running for about a year or so. We hit that 60% take rate really quickly, uh, kind of on the initial, hey, everybody, you've seen the construction, neighborhoods built, it's time to apply to get connected. You know, we hit 60% right away. And then it, it doesn't take long, just another year or so to get from 60 to 80%. And uh, some of them are actually 100% um, connected. So Really excited about the program, but I think the key is that we're focusing on the unserved and underserved areas. Yes, and uh, we didn't mention it, but uh, Mason PUD is um, PUD three is uh, on the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, it is enormous by the standards of most of the rest of the country in terms of landmass. A very large county, uh, but um, has uh, some pockets of density, uh, but a ton of forest land. Uh, Mike, is there anything you'd add to that in terms of helping people understand what it's like out there? Yeah, we have definitely rural areas and we are building to those that, you know, it's just not profitable for uh, private sector companies to build to. And, and we're really trying to answer that call, answer that challenge and get to those people uh, and serve them. You know, there, there are customers on the electric side, you know, as far as we provide services to them. So we, we definitely hear the call and, and the need to, to get to the most remote places and come up with a great program like the Fiberhood program to make it uh, to make the numbers work to, to expand those services in those tough to reach areas. So. I have a fun fact about the size of Mesa County. You mentioned it's such a large area. Uh, our service territory is approximately the size of the state of Rhode Island. That's enormous. Huge. Yes. And you have how many people there? Uh, we have 35,000 electric meters, but there are about 70 to 80,000 residents in Mason County. Now, um, Mike, you set the service zones boundaries. Do you have areas then where uh, there are people living who have no internet service, who don't have a service zone defined yet, probably because of cost or other issues of getting out there? Yes. Uh, and, and those will be forthcoming as well. Our service zones are set up right now with where we have distribution facilities where we can easily reach those areas and then to build a network within that community. Um, Eventually, you know, with, with the planning and design we're putting into it, we want to build to all of Mason County over time, uh, you know, or at least have the infrastructure in place to be able to serve them. But right now, defining those zones is key. So we are leveraging the assets that we already have, 
um, seeking grant dollars, of course, to extend those middle mile resources to reach those areas, but being very strategic in how we cultivate those, those fiberhood zones for now. But like I said, with the eventuality that we want to hit all over time or have a network that's capable of that. One of the things that we had talked about in previous episodes was the term of anticipointment. Um, and that was exciting of a base and then disappointing them that we either couldn't build to them or it was going to be a very long time to get, you know, to get them actually constructed. And so we really have prioritized our list of unserved and underserved communities to areas that we can feasibly and technically, uh, technically and reasonably build to uh, within a, within a time frame that, that we can all see and we can touch and we can work towards. Um, and as the network expands, as Mike said, we add more zones continually. So just because you're not in a service zone now, doesn't mean you're never going to be in a service zone. It means you'll be in a one later. Right. And we are uh, previously on episodes uh, 274 and 316 for people who want to check it out. Uh, that was a time when I felt really like we've been doing the show for a while and now it's been uh, we have twice as many episodes. It's wild. <laughs> um, the state of Washington uh, recently returned authority to PUDs to decide if they'd like to pursue uh, retail service themselves. Um, most PUDs are not doing that. In fact, I think there's only one that is doing it and another one that might. Uh, but um, you're firmly in the open access camp still, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we believe that our network will always remain open access. We think that's best for the consumer, uh, best for um, the retail service providers that have a have a, a source of income. You know, it's it's great. We have some service providers who own their own plant and and run and operate their own networks as well. But we also have service providers that only provide service on PUD networks, and so it works for uh, all all players. Right. And I think in that um, the second episode, 316, I think it was, we talked about some of the niche business models. Uh, and I think that's one of the coolest things about open access. But there's several other things we want to talk about. So, Mike, I want to ask you about grants. Um, the state of Washington has also been generous with grants. Uh, and so how has that gone in terms of uh, pursuing grants for uh, your public utility district? Yeah, you know, we are currently uh, just closing out uh, our, uh, our curb grant. Uh, we had a first round of curb grant that uh, expanded service to the southwest portion of our county, uh, some area on Harstein, kind of spread throughout the county, the southwest corner, the north corner, um, in Tahuya. Um, and that one's just wrapping up now. Um, we have a second curb grant that we're working on through the end of this year, uh, which uh, picks up off of more communities, more pockets scattered equally throughout the, throughout the county, working on an RUS uh, grant as well for a pocket area in Greatview, uh, underground construction uh, that's um, to be completed by 2026. Uh, lots of uh, lots of work involved in that one with 100% uh, underground for the most part, which is the most difficult type of work to extend services. And then uh, we recently just uh, were awarded a Washington State Broadband Office grant for our Coquillam communities, which is uh, about 680 customers uh, overhead primarily um, through the middle of our county. So uh, that's what we're working with now. Uh, we're seeking these grant opportunities uh, to build that middle mile out and then to get to the end users in these and, and just trying to leverage our existing network infrastructure as well and to make best use of those to hit these areas. You know, we've, we have uh, comprehensive data about uh, the inquiries we take in, you know, people who need service uh, and we leverage that data and in seeking these grants and where the density is and where people are screaming for it the most and don't have opportunity. Now, 
a thought popped in my head as you were describing that. And I know that um, your area is, well, at least I know that a lot of the Olympics are considered rainforest. Uh, do you face significant fire dan- danger out there as well? You know, the, there are, over the last few years, uh, not, not like Eastern Washington, but over the last few years, we have seen some more fire issues. Uh, the, the utilities took an aggressive uh, measure on our fire prevention program, which is great on the electric side. But like every utility these days, uh, prevention is is key and in, in making sure that, you know, uh, going forward, we have plans in place and our infrastructure is built to the best standards possible. That is something that we're actively uh, considering and, and, you know, looking at. Uh, the fiber network also lever- is able to be leveraged in um, remote disconnect devices, which uh, will be a benefit to that fire prevention as well. If the line goes down, having a a future device that they can open up without having to mobilize out there for to our SCADA system uh, is a benefit. And that's kind of where our vision is focused in preparing for that. Yeah, I learned from Douglas uh, Electric Cooperative in, in um, below you in Oregon that um, being underground doesn't protect you from the, the worst fires, but um, it seems like it's got to help somewhat uh, depending on the various things that you face. So I assume it's one of those things that you're looking at the cost of going underground on these long lengths and, and it's horrifying, but uh, it's got to be at least helpful knowing that it'll be very rare that you'll ever have any problem. Um, most of those areas are not where you're going to have the old uh, fiber seeking uh, backhoe problem, probably. Yeah, uh, you know, primarily where we're driven to go underground, where we're looking at our existing utilities uh, is where our primary cable um, we, we have a dig once policy, right? So if we're looking to uh, expand our fiber, we ensure our electrical facilities are right there with it, whether it's underground or overhead. Uh, we're, we're digging once where we have to dig. We're placing future um, electrical conduit and facilities at our expense outside the grant just to ensure that we're digging, digging once and uh, making the best use of those resources while they're in the field. And we're going to talk in a, in a minute about supply chain challenges, which I'm sure you hit on the electric side as well as on the uh, the fiber side as your, or I should say on the telecom side, because fiber is used for both the electric and the telecom side. But um, I'm curious before we talk about supply chains, if we can finish up on the the telecom services, um, have you had any like uh, great success stories or people, uh, you know, uh, widows and orphans being uh, having their lives changed, you know, <laughs> the kinds of uh, enthusiastic stories that help people understand why this is a uh, valuable work? You know, I uh, personally have been a little bit disconnected to the individual stories uh, lately. Mike maybe has some, uh, but I do know that we're not building to places that had adequate broadband before they're going from zero to a hundred zero to a thousand you know to use our numbers uh correctly um and it's it's life-changing it really is life-changing for um homes for the way that our community runs you know mace county has 73 percent i think is the number of home-based uh, uh workers that live outside of the in outside of the city centers in the rural areas and that's got to be really helpful to be able to work from home um, to be able to take care of, you know, all, all of the basic necessities. I often joke with friends that um, bad internet is worse than no internet because it gives you that hope that you will be able to connect. And we're taking folks from bad internet to the best you can find. So it, it really is a, a game changer. Yeah, I've spoken with uh, Melvin John from the Ho Tribe, uh, and they were early on Starlink. 
And it was clear that they loved it and it was great, but also they have the canopy to deal with. Uh, they're not in like Western Arizona where there's a broad, wide open sky. And so they, um, I know that that's a challenge probably for a lot of your customers where they they may not be able to take advantage of even uh, low earth orbit satellite breakthroughs that have helped some people out. Right. We have heard um, some success stories of Starlink. Uh, one of our uh, team members here uses Starlink to be able to work remotely um, from occasion. So we know that it is possible, but uh, you know nothing beats a fiber connection directly to the home. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, are there any stories that are fresh in your head of uh, local businesses or residents? No, no stories specifically, just uh, emails uh, that, that come in thanking us so much for, for connecting them. Uh, you know, we, we hear this, the, the desperation, you know, when we get the inquiries that come in and then to see something fulfilled on the backside and to see a thank you note come through. It's just those ones and twos that, that come in. But but thank you so much. My, my child's able to attend school online or able to download a lesson without having to drive somewhere to, to get that. that that's really the... the what makes it worthwhile for us, you know, is, is, is just seeing those emails come through and, 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 you know, understanding it's heartfelt. It really is. Yeah. That's excellent. So let's talk about some of the challenges that you've then faced more recently uh, with uh, supply chain challenges. Uh, I understand that that falls on your face, Mike. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, over this uh, last couple of years, especially uh, we've seen supply chain shortages for all types of uh components from the fiber optic cable itself, the distribution terminals, line hardware, PVC products like uh, conduit, faults, pedestals. And it really uh, forced us to kind of look outside the box to find alternative vendors who were not only producing those products, but who could get them to us in a timely manner to continue on with the construction schedule that, that we're maintaining right now. We looked at, we found one resource right across the street from us, which was awesome. Uh, fiberglass uh, manufacturing facility, uh, create some fiber vaults for us, which turned out to be really nice. Um, just uh, kind of a painstaking process going through, looking at all the parts and processes, because there's always a downstream effect. Whenever you change out a part or have an alternate part come through, there's a downstream effect for all the attachment hardware that's associated, all the other um parts and pieces to go along with it. So trying to match that up from cable diameter specifications to glass specifications to, you know, made up with our existing infrastructure. It's, it was challenging, but uh, worthwhile to bring on these alternate items and see success and getting lead times shortened that way as well. And still maintaining a network that, that can fully function and, uh, and, and serve as needed. So. Let's talk about the fiber vaults for a second. So what does that entail? I mean, uh, are there open access designs on the internet where you can sort of take them a, a CAD file and they can figure it out? Or is it is it a lot of work for them to figure out how to manufacture it to make sure it works with all of the, the attachments you have that, that are expecting? I don't, I don't even have a sense exactly of what might be involved, but I assume that it's not just a box. <laughs> Yeah, you know, for, uh, you know, there, there's HDPE uh, vaults, there's uh, PVC and concrete is specifically what, what's out there. Um, we order, we borrow from the electric side here and there, looking at some of the concrete vaults if and when needed, but it's nothing that we could like take to a manufacturer and have them produce. It's kind of finding what's already out there and where it is, and then adapting hardware to match up with that. So uh, a couple of examples would be just... Um, getting a vault that's similar in size that meets the bend radius for the cable uh, can be set with trucks and equipment that we already use. Um, the, the dig out spec is 
similar to what we have for when customers perform any type of rest or trenching and restoration, uh, but then also the bracketry that holds the terminals. We have a local machine shop who uh, creates brackets and we had to go back and forth a couple of times on more of a universal type bracket and just making sure that our terminals can mount inside those vaults, that we have the hardware we need and that the cable penetration points come in at the right spaces so we can go in and out of those vaults. The other thing is making sure they're identifiable. So a uniform tagging system that adheres to all those types of materials, whether it be concrete or PVC for, for our labeling and, and uh, mapping standards. Yeah, it was, it's, uh, it's been a challenge, but uh, we have a great team and, and we found a lot of great products that they work for us and that'll service going forward as well, having those alternate. And all of those are delays and challenges while you're trying to meet your schedule, right? It's not like when you when you set up your construction timelines and your pipeline that you thought, oh, we'll just need a lot of extra time to like go back and forth on the machinist. Exactly. You know, and we we have we budgeted projects off of our traditional standards that we had on, and we've all seen uh, that the prices of uh, goods go up here lately as well. So trying to match that, finding something that's comparable yet uh, fits within the budget as well. Uh, and, and it will work for our application and just multiply that on you know, even the smallest components in some cases, you know, pull attachment hardware. Uh, you know, there's only so many manufacturers out there and uh, finding something that meets your specifications and making sure that it, it will fit with the other components that actually fit in the assembly overall. That's been some of the most challenging resources. But uh, I'm happy to say that, you know, we completed our curb one deadline uh, on time, actually, uh, in spite of those delays and setbacks. Uh, so that, that's a real win for us for sure. But we definitely are, you know, focused on making our goals, making our commitments in light of these challenges and doing absolute the best we can to, to make that happen. There's a, and I'll come to you, Justin, for this. Um, I, I'm curious, there's a discussion about this being a once in a generation funding. I've tried to avoid that discussion because um, I know that there's going to be a great need both in, uh, I think, um, uh, urban areas uh, as well as uh, we'll still have more need in some rural areas when all this money is spent. But when you look at the amount of money that the Washington Broadband Office will be distributing, um, do you have a sense of whether you could say, you know, you'll have to predict what share of it you may be eligible for and able to get. But um, would you say it is likely possible or not likely uh, that uh, you would be able to meet uh, the vast majority of the rural need uh, when that money comes through? It's a great question and really is the uh, billion dollar question, perhaps, uh, <laughs> you know, multi-billion dollar question. Um, and, you know, Mason PUD3 is a local government and we're we're audited, uh, we follow all the rules, we make sure that we are only committing to what we can uh, complete, um, and, and we're fully engaged in this process. So we're all in and we're all in the right way. I think that we, in that mindset, we have a challenge because we're only gonna say that we want the money for what we know we can accomplish. Right. I think sense. of this as the hamster in the snake, which people always cringe at. Like there's only a certain amount you can digest at any given time. Exactly right. And and we're not going to we're not going to bite off more than we can chew. But we we definitely need to be fully engaged in this in this whole thing. And I am concerned that there are companies who have been. Gosh, I, I don't know how to say this delicately, but playing the telecom money game for a lot longer than we have. And, you know, they they take as much as they can and they make it work for whatever works within their business model. 
that's not how Mason PUD3 operates. You know, we, we establish a plan, we try to fund the plan, and then we build the plan. And then we start again uh, to do the rest. We're, we're going to be around for a long time. Uh, we're building infrastructure that lasts. Uh, nobody's cutting corners around here. And we're making sure that we're providing the best and the most reliable. How do we do that with the large goal of connecting everybody in Mason County as soon as possible? I don't know that we have the answer for that yet. I know that we can build um, you know, the areas that are unserved and underserved. We've identified those. We're ready to make our application when the NOFO is released and, and when, it's, uh, when more details emerge. We're going to be fully engaged. But um, it's a little bit of a mind shift a mindset shift for us. And, and we're trying to make sure that we're, we have all of our, all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted uh, in that. A lot of money has gone out for the CAF, CAF 2, uh, you know, we're funding 10-1. You know, there's a lot of money that was spent on that and we haven't really seen it solve actual problems at the home. And we don't want to, we certainly don't want to be, and we will not be uh, involved with receiving funding and then underperforming. There's strict timelines and there's very realistic challenges that come to having to build a system like this in the environment you are. And, and on top of that, I mean, I don't know, I haven't looked at the full analyses, but my experience with Washington State suggests that that money will not solve 100% of the unserved needs in Washington, no matter how it is spent. Yeah, I would agree. Mike, is there anything you'd add on to that just to give a perspective on it? You know, like Justin was saying, the money that's out there, there, there's been money out there for years. We're seeing a a large influx now and, uh, you know, utilities like us going forward with our plans and our approaches, the way they're defined are really seeing results. And that's what I'm encouraged to see. We've seen this where we're replicating the model. We have areas defined that need the service. We have the backing of the customers out there that we already have on the electrical side and say they need the service. We have a plan. It's just staggering out the amount, you know, that we get so we can confidently meet these commitments on time and on budget. We, we hope this continues for a while to, to fund the system, just not in the short term, but, you know, in the years to come so we can be right there with it and continue on because that's, that's what we need to do. Thank you so much, uh, Mike and Justin. I uh, really appreciate the time. And uh, I'm hoping, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to get out sometime in the next year or two with my family to do some hiking in the Olympics and the Cascades. So uh, maybe I'll be giving you a little a little ring that I'm coming through town. But uh, until then, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Look us up, stop by. We'd love to take you on a boots on the ground tour of uh, a fiberhood. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives, if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.